I actually think that if we're going to design everything in VR and go the other way around, then bring it into a screen-based software, we're actually going to produce new styles. Like we're really going to produce buildings that just look different. Like VR is going to change the way cities and cityscapes look like just because we are making different shapes and different things that our brains would not do on a screen-based software. Hi, I'm Josh Gonzalez, and welcome to MindMeld. This is a podcast where I have in-depth conversations with some of the brightest people in the known universe. My aim is to spark deep conversations around interesting topics to find the tools, tactics, and philosophies that we can all use in our daily and creative lives. In this episode, I'm joined by Andrea Yon Kojikaru. Andrea is a software developer and a licensed architect. She's the co-founder and CEO of Numina, an award-winning German company that designs and develops both virtual and physical spaces. Numina's projects span from virtual reality applications for training and marketing to mixed-use buildings. And aside from design and code, Andrea has a deep interest in the social and philosophical implications of immersive tech, which we get pretty deep into for this episode. And she's currently working on a new VR software tool for immersive architectural design. So in this episode, Andrea and I talk about the creative and philosophical implications of designing spaces in virtual reality and how this will completely change architecture in the near future. And we also get into our philosophies around tools for thought, which we talk about as software tools that can actually change the way that we think creatively. So there's a lot to unpack in this episode. So as always, I have a detailed show notes that you can get links to everything we talk about, including any resources or tools or people we talk about. And you can find all of these in the show notes for this episode. You can get the link for the show notes in the description of this podcast or go directly to my website at joshgonzalvescom slash podcast. That's J-O-S-H-G-O-N-S-A-L-V-E-S dot com slash podcast. And if you found anything interesting or useful in this episode, please share this online. You can tag me or you can use the hashtag MindMeld so people can find it. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. I publish new episodes every Monday around different topics with new guests each time. Just subscribe on whatever app you're listening to this on and you'll get notified when new episodes come out. So let's get right into it. I'm Josh Gonzalez and this is MindMeld with Andrea Yon Kojikaru. Andrea, thank you so much for coming on MindMeld. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you for having me. So I'm thinking maybe the best way to start this, just for some people listening to this podcast that maybe don't know you, maybe you can kind of start with your story and how you got into starting your business. And maybe you can kind of like give us a little background on the business and sort of where you've been in the industry so far, because you've done a lot. And just to summarize all that at the beginning, I think would be a great preface to this whole conversation. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so I, I think this uh, combination of VR and architecture is definitely something everyone is looking at. Um, I feel like there are two fields that are kind of the obvious go-to fields for VR to make a big splash in. So it's training and medical training. And then on the other side is architecture. Um, 
but yeah, I so I definitely have a lot to say about it. Um, to 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 take a step back and start a bit from the beginning. Um, I basically I'm I'm a licensed architect. I was trained as an architect. Um, but as a small child, I got into coding with my dad in the eighties, and um, I never pursued coding, but it's always been in the back of my mind. And actually, my dad is a self-taught programmer. So growing up um, and seeing him figure that out in the 80s, just completely on his own, um, has kind of gotten this idea into my head that, hey, if I ever need programming, I'm just going to pick it up, kind of just like my dad. And I, I've kind of half picked it up when I was a child. Um, I, could, I could like do simple programs and like, you know, type commands and stuff. Um, so it's, I've always looked for ways to combine architecture with coding and, um, I never found something that felt right. So when I was, a an architect in New York, there were some things you could do with coding skills, but it wasn't the exciting stuff. You know, it was like do a plugin for AutoCAD. I will help you count windows faster or keep track of your door schedule. But that wasn't really something that would get me like super excited. Um, and also the kind of people that would code those plugins would be completely pulled out of the creative side. You know, they would be taken into the more technical department of the, that particular architecture office. And I didn't want to go there either. Like I kind of wanted to stay with the creative artistic people that do crazy sketches of a skyscraper. Um, so, so I've always kind of had this in the back of my mind. And about five years ago, I got an invitation to go to a studio in Stuttgart. It was um, like a virtual reality studio and try, I think I tried the DK2 um, and it just blew me away. It just was like, and I, I didn't really see anything special. I was just on top of the rooftop and they were actually working on some kind of um, configurator for an Audi car. And honestly, I have no, Personally, I have no interest in cars <laughs> or in my car configurator, um, but it would just blew me away. And I think I was very lucky that my first experience was that and not like cardboard, for example, because I don't know if it would have had the same impact. Um, so basically, it was the first moment in my life when I felt so shaken by something I had witnessed that I felt my life cannot be the same again. So wow. four weeks later, I quit my job. No way. Yeah. And that's like a pure architecture job. Yeah. I was a project manager in Stuttgart um, running this like big development project in Prague. Um, so it was kind of, kind of like my dream job, right? Except... Or so you thought at the time. Yeah. And then I saw this VR thing and it immediately dawn on me that this is it as in to get vr to happen you need two things you need to be able to produce three-dimensional worlds and model them which i knew how to do because i'm an architect and you need to code it like you need to code the behavior in there and i was like holy shit um and yeah i just quit my job that's awesome so what did you what did you do after you quit your job like what was the idea behind quitting and jumping into vr um, I took six months off to refresh my coding skills, <laughs> get back into them after like 30 years, um, and uh, to learn Unity. 
Oh, that's awesome. So are you still working 100% in Unity? Yes. That's awesome. So why did you choose Unity over something like Unreal Engine, for example? Um, at the time, a lot of the people that I talked to right at that moment when I was like, hey, I'm kind of thinking of doing this. So I'm going to take six months off. Or where should I start? A lot of those specific people were using Unity. So right. in a way, it was a bit of a biased decision because I, mm. I didn't know as many people as I know now in the industry. And mm -hmm. maybe it just happened that all of them were using Unity. Um, and the other thing is I really wanted something where I can just like do pure coding. Um, right. And the people using Unreal, the maybe one or two I, I had talked to, um, were more like artists and architects that were using this blueprint stuff. Um, and I mean, I really just wanted coding. Like I really didn't want like an intermediate um, between me and code like i just wanted to to attach behavior that i code the traditional way now with visual scripting now with blueprint or whatever just a traditional way and then i attach that behavior to my three-dimensional stuff um so i know unreal does that too in c plus mm plus -hmm. um but yeah i just got on the track of unity and c sharp and then i just jumped into those two things immediately that's awesome. Have you been looking into other like programming languages or like looking into things like blueprints or is like they, that still not really interest you? I did try um, Playmaker, which is kind of the oh, yes. visual scripting part of Unity. And five years ago, it was it was like an independent plugin you could buy from the asset store. Um, and I got super frustrated with it right away. And then I just switched to just using C Sharp. That's awesome. So then once you kind of quit your job, you started your company and I, I hope I'm not mispronouncing this either, but is, is it Numena? You can do it How either Numena the... or Numena. It's Numena. Yeah. Yeah. It's a... That sounds cooler. Numena sounds more like a sci-fi, really fucking cool tech company. So why don't you kind of explain that? Because it's such a fascinating company. There's a few different arms and I know you guys are doing something very specific right now. You have like almost all of your attentions going on to one product, but I'd love to hear that story of how you started the company and like, some of the projects you've been working on as well. Sure. So um, we have like a mixed business model and that was the idea from the beginning. And honestly, I think we'll just keep going with that. Um, we uh, do custom client work uh, AR and VR, and sometimes some small architecture projects to generate cash flow. And then we take whatever revenue we get out of that and we throw it into um, a product that we've been working on for about a year and a half now. Um, and of course, we are slow as hell. Um, but I just, for me personally, I see more advantages. Uh, doing it this way than in going kind of the investor route, basically. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good way to, it, it, it helps you stay independent. You can be the, you know, the champion of your own destiny. You can kind of like, you know, move in the direction you want and not have to worry about investors. So it's really interesting to me because I talk a lot about on this podcast um, of the sort of like the idea of like a stage one, stage two business, like stage one being sort of like just completely client work. And it's just like an agency model where like, you know, you're kind of trading time for money and you're, you're doing client work, you're doing projects like one-on-one. -on -one. 
And then there's sort of like the stage two business model, which is like you have a product that you're kind of selling, right? So you can also productize your services in a way. But I find it interesting that a lot of companies stick with both business models. It's great for cash flow, right? You're doing like big projects and it's a good way to cash flow the, um, the software that you guys are working on. So maybe like before we get into it, um, I'd love for you to kind of like give me a little bit of a, the lowdown on the software and kind of what it's meant to do, who's it for, and what the vision is for the product. The people working um, at Numena right now, almost all of us are architects who code. Since we are all architects who can code, of course, what, what is it that we're dying to do? We're dying to design buildings directly in VR. Um, because if you follow up um, these whole conversations that go on on Twitter and other social media about workflow, right? Like VR workflow, there are tons of workshops and courses being offered right now on all the edtech platforms about how do you produce VR and what's your workflow. And it always goes, you have some kind of 3D modeling software, and then you take that into Unreal or Unity. Um, but for us as architects, that just seems absolutely terrible because we want to be able to design and move things and make design choices in VR. Like, like I want to find myself in the room that I'm supposed to designing and then just like move that wall and see how the sun changes. Like, I don't want to do that in a 3D software and then bring it into VR and then back and forth and back and forth. Um, so. That's how, that's how it started. It started like, man, I really want to be in there and like change and feel how these walls are moving and feel how the space changes. Um, so we, that was just kind of the initial idea. And I think it started as a need that we had. And we, we're still in a, this kind of interesting position where as architects still designing small buildings sometimes, like real buildings, we are also the developers and our own client. <laughs> it makes sense because like you guys are using the tool yourself to actually do the client work. That's amazing. That's really cool because that's what I'm sure that's how you find a lot of bugs. That's where you figure out, hey, like we should have like this feature or that feature. So like from a product perspective, it makes so much sense being your own user, because if you guys can find use for it, I'm sure there's other people, right? There's got to be tons of people who will find this incredibly useful. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the I feel like the single most wow moment of my career has been the moment when I started to develop this product as an architect, you know? I got that feeling that I'm I'm developing my own software tool for my own architecture needs. And you know, that's that was like so empowering because as an architect, you always consume software. You there is there is no one in school and there's no article and there's nothing that tells you, hey, you can actually like develop your own software. I mean that if you say that to any other architect, they'll say that's insanity. I mean, it's enough. I had to be in school for like 12 years to learn how to do architecture. Now you want me to develop software. So we are being sold this idea of architects as consumers of software, right? Um, but my world honestly turned upside down when I, it dawned on me that, 
hey, I can actually code my own tool. And that's really kind of triggered some like huge, huge changes in terms of everything, in terms of how I design, in terms of the way the buildings that I design look like, in terms of like how I see myself in the world, how I see my company in the world, like that completely redefined everything in my head. Yeah. And I, I don't know how open you are to this, but definitely getting on some more of like the philosophical stuff of that, you know, when you're building these, you know, 3D worlds and you're in a virtual reality, I want to know like a little bit deeper on that, like how you actually, how it actually changes the way that you view yourself in reality. Because I've definitely at times, you know, as a VR developer myself, you know, working in Unity and working with some of these tools, it's almost like seeing the source code of reality, right? Especially when you're really thinking about space, like, do you go into like buildings and, and things like that and really think about it in a different way now after being in VR and after kind of seeing like the quote unquote, like source code of reality? Do you kind of have like a weird, not even a weird feeling, but like just a different type of feeling when you go into spaces now? Yeah, totally. And after I spent like a whole day surrounded by virtual walls that in my head are going to one day become real walls. Because you know, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's a very big difference between designing completely virtual environments that are meant to stay virtual. So those I think of more like kind of ephemeral things that I can, you know, add particle effects to them to dissolve them in the air or move them or they're floating. So my mindset is totally different when something, an environment is designed as a virtual thing and stays virtual. But when I'm in VR designing something that I know will be built, that I'm trying to imagine how these walls would one day be actual solid walls. Um, so there's always kind of this, this, this um, play in my head, right? Between, oh, is this wall virtual? Is this real? So after I do that for several hours a day and I, had a, I take the headset off, then I do have this few seconds, you know, when I look at the real wall and I'm like, okay, this is a real wall. But now with these graphic cards and these like headsets getting better and better resolution, you know, your brain is totally starting to mess with you at some point. Absolutely. Oh, totally. Especially after like using, I mean, I have it right here. Anyone listening to the audio, I'm pointing to an Oculus Quest 2. Like the, the display on it is incredible. And I've used it with like the link cable onto my PC. So you get the graphics card plus a really nice display. And same thing. I'm like, holy shit. Like you kind of forget after a little while. So I think it's like you definitely need some sort of like handle on reality that most architects probably don't even consider you got to like kind of think about that because you just kind of said about you know having like particle effects and stuff like that you can now play with materials that literally don't exist in reality like you know when you're thinking about the materials you're going to use for a physical building i'm sure you're thinking of like oh like what materials are we going to use is this going to be like a wood is this going to be some kind of granite but with vr it's like hey this could be a weird you know particle effects and like explosions that won't kill you and like why how how could that change the way that you experience space i think it's so fascinating yeah and it's um it's like i i it's a struggle for us right now to also do physical projects because we're a small studio so we already have enough on our hands with client work and then our own product um so we only do small buildings and we take these small real buildings only because we kind of use them as test <laughs> test projects for software 
Um, but I do hope that one day um, when some parts of the company are going to run more or less without me, that I'm going to also focus on growing the physical building part of the company. Because uh, I, I feel it's, it's a completely insane proposition and attempt to try to, to have a company that does both, has expertise in both these two fields. But I just find so much value in being able to play mentally with exactly what you just said, right? Is this going to be and stay forever a virtual wall? Or is this one day going to become a physical wall? And what are the different type of needs of these two types of walls? So that, that mental exercise opens up so much fascinating potential and ideas and philosophies about the nature of space and the nature of human minds and how we experience space. Yeah, no, totally. And it, it only makes sense that you would use a 3D tool, like an inherent 3D tool like VR to design these places because people are using 3D tools. I put that in air quotes because they're still using a 2D screen, right? Most architects are using, like you said, AutoCAD or like they're most of them are drawing, like they're drawing on paper and like they're either using just the drawing or they're going to put that into a 3D model in some sort on the computer. But they're still looking through a little window like they're going to look at this building it's not in um you know one-to-one relationship with like you know sizing and space it's like you're looking at like a either a dollhouse view or you're like looking on a screen you don't get a full sense of space so i'm sure like architects they can figure it out you know they probably have a sense i'm sure you know more than anyone like you have a sense of space like you can kind of tell oh i know how how big a couple i don't know five inches is or i know how big five meters is People like me, I don't really know. I can't really visualize that, right? I can't like, okay, what is like, how big is the space? So when, especially when you're talking to clients, whether as a developer, I'm sure like people who get like custom homes, they need to be able to visualize it like exactly the way it's going to be in reality. Like I think a screen doesn't really do it. You can get maybe an aesthetic look like, oh, I can see how it's going to look, but you don't really get a sense of feeling, especially when it comes to like a user experience of that house. Like you, there's no way to know, oh, this door is too short or that needs to go over a couple inches. There's no way to know that until you're actually there. And it's right now, it's a little bit too late after they physically built it. It's very expensive to move a door or a wall as opposed to doing it in VR, right? So how do you think about that when it comes to like showcasing for clients? And I think we talked about this before where you were thinking the people using this product that you're building might not even be architects. They might just be people who want to design their own home. So I'd like to hear how you guys think about that, especially philosophically, because it's it's interesting to me that we're still doing 3D work in a 2D screen. Yeah, so basically the market is getting more and more saturated at this point with VR visualization tools. Um, that means you design your building in some 3D software and then you export the 3D model of that building into a VR visualization slash collaboration tool. And then you can meet clients there or your collaborators and just discuss the building. Um, and what we're doing is completely different than that in two very big aspects. The first aspect is that what what interests us is the following question. When you make design decision on a computer screen, you kind of have this God 
perspective, like this bird's eye view, this very, you're in this very abstract mental space. Um, so you take very logical decision, oh, this door should be here, this window should be here. Um, but when you are making the same kind of decision in a virtual space, you actually react to different kind of things. You know, you, you react to things like, is the width of this hallway, does it feel right? Does the ceiling height in this room feel right? Um, does, the, does the light coming in in December at 9 a.m. in my kitchen feel right? And of course, you still need the abstract kind of um, logic to make the structure of your building and everything work. But there, there are a lot of other kind of decisions that have nothing to do with the structure um, that you would never be able to react to and make if you design everything on a computer, even if afterwards you look at it in VR. So what we are interested in is to have these decisions, to make this decision in VR. So you don't just look at things in VR, you actually change the walls and change the windows in VR. And what we have seen, which is for me at least absolutely phenomenal, is that when you then take the 3D model the other way around, you take it out of VR, so you've designed it in VR and you take it out of VR and you put it in a regular uh, screen-based software and you look at it, the logic of it, it's like so interesting. It's like, holy shit. It's like, I would have, I mean, I look at it and I'm like, I would have never put that wall there. Like my, my very abstract mathematical logic from the God's perspective would have never made that decision. But my embodied phenomenological self in that room reacting to, to the, this feeling of light and this immersive environment made that decision. So this is the missing design element that for me is just amazing that you do not have with the workflow that is being pushed forward by all these other visualization tools that are out there and, and what we're doing differently. So I actually think that if we're going to design everything in VR and go the other way around, then bring it into a screen-based software, we're actually going to produce new styles. Like we're really going to produce buildings that just look different. Like VR is going to change the way cities and cityscapes look like just because we are making different shapes and different things that our brains would not do on a screen-based software. Does that make sense? It totally does. And it actually like just brings up so many more questions for me. That is sort of like, there's kind of two really big points there. And the, the first one just being sort of, you know, the default mode of designing from God mode versus designing from like an embodied perspective, right? Like when you're on a screen base, you're kind of in this God mode and you're, and that's, I mean, that's, it's, again, philosophically, we're sort of like the gods creating our reality, right? We're cre like the world looks totally different now than it does a hundred years ago. And I think that's really cool. But then when it comes to like human centered design and it comes to like user experience design, you know, I think architects could take a lot more from software development in that sense where it's like, yeah, you should be designing from like, how tall is a normal human being? Well, they're not like fucking 100 feet tall and like this big giant looking at the small building. They're inside of it and they're looking up, they're looking around, they're gonna be moving around here. So I think designing from that first, do you think about that first? Like, do you design from like the embodied perspective first and then zoom out? Or how do you think about that now that you've been designing in VR? Yeah. 
Totally. I think about it, I call it inside-out design. You, I, I start with, with my scale and my body, and then I design outwards. It's kind of like I design my way, like I put myself in the middle of the house and then I design my way towards the door. I design my way out. <laughs> um, whereas in, in typical design process, you design the other way around. You first design the outline and there's like some boxy thing and then you put it on your, your ground that you bought, your lot, and then you, then you design the inside. Then you kind of work your way from the outer walls um, to the inside. Of course, there's still kind of like legal and technical constraints you should follow. You know, you can't just go inside out and end up with some crazy thing that's going to be in your neighbor's, <laughs> it's going to extend to your neighbor's backyard. So you still need to check for things like that. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a very different approach. And in a way, I feel like um, this was one of the things, for example, that was a bit like the elephant in the room for me when I was in grad school. So in, in architecture grad school, we would just design these um, kind of convoluted buildings. You know, we had like fancy architects like Frank Gehry, Teach Studios. And um, we would be praised sometimes solely based on the graphical beauty of the floor plan. And that always struck me as very strange. You know, it's like they, they would they would comment things like, oh, that corner, that poche, poche is like the dark stuff that you color the walls with. Oh, it looks so beautiful in there. And I was like, you don't even know the quality of that space. I, maybe that is like a shit corner. It just looks pretty on the plan, which is in terms of the final, you know, the use and the experiential qualities of space. That's like the least relevant stuff, you know, how pretty the plan looks like. Um, but on the other hand, um, we did not have VR at the time when I was in grad school, and there was no way for us to have a shared, embodied, phenomenal experience of that building. So in a way, we were discussing the only thing that we could all see and have access to, which were the drawings, right? Um, otherwise, we would have ended up having a stupid, irrelevant fight about what each of us thought that corner felt like, you know? I mean, and you can't really indulge in that kind of conversation for too long. Um, but now with VR, it's like, well, just put a goggles on and take a look at how that feels like. And then, you know, we can all experience that. And then we have a proper conversation. So it, it opens up discussions about architectural design in ways that were basically never possible in all of like architectural history so i do expect a monumental change in like architectural history in terms of styles of designs philosophies of designs the look of buildings like all of that so i feel like when when you see online these um these companies that are just advertising oh experience the space or collaborate in the space they're actually selling it short you know, because it's not just about having your client look at the space, you know, it's really designing in a different way. Yeah, totally. And how do you think that will change? Like, just based on some of your experience doing this process, like, do you see it being more of like the sci-fi kind of reality? Or is that just like the designer's choice? Like, are st people still going to create like mid-century homes in VR? Because I've seen some of your work that you post on Twitter, it looks absolutely gorgeous, like beautiful 
like it just looks very like sci-fi like it looks to me like the future like it really seems to me like you're designing the future so do you think that's what architects are going to lean towards like this more like holistic sort of like almost organic there's almost like this organic nature to it um rather than just like squared off rooms or something a little bit more fluid to it so do you see that's how people will start to think about it yeah i i think so and it's impossible to say exactly what stylistic direction people are going to take but this is what the part that's kind of the holy grail right it's 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 a tool that's that's taking us with such ease into different way of thinking right and into into a path where we make different decisions and that is like how many times in history does that happen and i feel like moments in human history and in the history of human thought where technology kind of came in and enabled people to like all of a sudden think in a different way and make decisions they would have never taken otherwise it's just phenomenal so i think we i think we're still going to be for a few more years stuck in this world of always oh, just visualizing things you design in a traditional way but hopefully um we will move out of that um and we'll start designing in vr so i'm hoping the software we're working on is going to be like a small piece of the puzzle trying to take things in that direction yeah i mean it it makes total sense and i think like the other part of it is like almost like we're going into a new paradigm of design, right? Like that's not just an architect, but like we're seeing people design cars and stuff in, in VR and obviously the games and entertainment experiences is totally different. So like, now that we're in this new paradigm, I'm sure there's still people like older architects are, they're going to be stuck in their ways. They're just going to be designing the same way they ever did. And they're going to continue that way. So do you think it's going to be more like the new students that are up and coming to start learning learning it this way? Or do you, do you see from your experience, like older architects or people in the industry, are they willing to change or they, do they want to change? I know it's a notorious hard, notoriously hard field uh, when it comes to technology and technology adoption. So do you think it's just a matter of teaching like the students um, these new philosophies? So we've had two co- two groups of people being extremely responsive to what we're doing. The first group were clients and the second group were young architects or students, yes. Um, What happens with um, the more like mid to late career architects is that they're so entrenched into a certain way of doing things. And there's something that's, um, there's 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 a little bit of a background that I feel like I need to explain about architecture. Um, architecture has been the the number one concern of architecture as a profession for the past few centuries has been um, ways of drawing as a method of documentation. That has been our main interest because basically, as an architect, you're not the one building the building. You have to, but you have to somehow communicate your intent to an army of unqualified workers. So you have to make these very meticulous, precise drawings that communicate your design intent so that the people actually putting brick above brick can really, really get your design done. And there has been nothing else that's more precious in architecture than 
this fetishism of the drawing and with with good reason of course because you don't you don't want to you, you you don't want to do imprecise incorrect drawings and then give them to the workers and then they end up doing something and you go like holy shit what did you just build <laughs> right <laughs> um first of all it's unsafe second of all it looks awful what are you guys doing <laughs> right um so in when you're in architecture school um you just have to learn how to draw that's just there's that's the number one priority and um, now with this VR stuff, we basically come with a proposition that scares the hell out of all architects. Sometimes it even scares me because even I have this like irrational love for drawing. <laughs> and, um, and you come now and you say, hey, maybe drawing is just not how we design or it's like not that important. Maybe we figure out our building in this kind of abstract, not abstract, but like kind of phenomenal feeling kind of oh how does this light makes me feel kind of way and that really scares people that's just really not who we are and how we think as architects so it's it's almost pushing in it's pushing very hard towards like a redefinition of who we are as architects and how we think of of the design process that's kind of scary um but we've had we've but but yeah the two groups that i mentioned earlier so we've actually started to design the ui and ux of our application to target a little bit people with no um no like traditional design experience and we've gone we've just tested things we're like let's just do it and see what happens um we've gotten some clients in vr um, that came to us for small little projects. So there was someone that came and said, look, I, I just want like a tiny little house and it's more like a study because I haven't bought the ground yet. So I want you to just do a quick study for me um, to see kind of how it could look like, the size of how many bedrooms we can get. Um, and we're like, well, this is the, we thought this was the perfect project to test this thing. So we 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 got a person to actually try to design to do their own study and they got into vr and they were like like what am i doing like i'm not an architect and then we guided them we were looking at the screen to see what they're doing and it was like incredible like the people it's so it's so natural to understand and move walls around and stuff that they're like, oh, okay, so this is the living room and I don't like this wall here, so I'm going to move it. Oh, I think I want another window there, so put another window there. Put some tables around to get a sense of the scale. Okay, where do you want your stair? Do you want to go up on this side? Do you want to go up on this side? Where do you want the big bedroom? And this person just ended up designing their house. And we did like two sessions and... They were like blown away. They were like, holy shit, I, I designed my house. And, and they really felt like, I mean, they took every decision. They moved every wall. They placed every window. So it's exactly what an architect would do. And it was just a complete like kind of life-shattering kind of experience for that person, you know, because you wouldn't think you would be able to do that. Um, so that's also a very interesting thing for us and a very interesting direction that this software opens up 
that also scares the shit out of architects, right? Because a traditional architect wants to design everything and make the design decisions. The idea is that you just do all the work and you show the client, the client says amazing, and then you built it. Yeah, it's a totally different paradigm. And I think what's really cool about it is like, are you kind of familiar? I think we talked about this before, actually, the whole no code movement, which is funny because like you loved code and you love building it. But what's really awesome is you can then create applications where then people who have zero, not only no technology experience, but no architecture experience, and they can then become citizen designers or citizen builders where they can then use the tool as like a layer above the technology, a layer above, you know, learning to be an architect. And it's so familiar for them. Like it doesn't need to be that hard. I mean, I'm sure it'd be really interesting to see maybe like um, a control group where you give them maybe a week or two week, like architecture, like, um, like a boot camp. You just give them a little boot camp of like, here's like the design principles of architecture, then go do it. I'd love to see um, the difference between those two or if it makes no difference between someone just jumping in and naturally figuring it out. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, and we're, we're planning a lot of things like that over the next year as we're getting closer to launch the thing and going into beta. Um, but that's exactly it. Um, basically, what I, what I did in architecture school, I spent a huge amount of time learning drawing conventions, right? Because representing in a two-dimensional way something that's actually spatial and three-dimension is a lot of work. And that's what you learn as an architect. But now we don't need these conventions. We don't need these drawing conventions and symbols that show you what, that this is a floor and not the ceiling or whatever. Um, and actually, I think that's the barrier. That's why normal people that are not trained are having such a hard time looking at architectural drawings and really f understanding distances and everything. But you take that away, people can actually do it. Like people can make their own decision. People can answer the question is, do I like this room? You know what I mean? Um, and I'm like, okay, then I actually think most of architecture could be transferred like to other people. Like all of a sudden the entry barrier becomes much, much lower for architectural designers basically yeah like think about how many people play the sims right and they love it and there's a reason why that game is like a cultural phenomenon right people love to do that people i just spoke to another woman on my podcast just uh i think last week uh, melissa vong and she's an entrepreneur she sells things on amazon like health and beauty but what she did with her money was she wanted to build her dream home so actually what she did she hired a, an architecture firm to basically provide her with a few like prefabs, right? You get like a few templates, like, oh, I like that house. So she can already figure out what she likes. Then from there, she can start designing stuff, like figuring out the tiles and figuring out like what type of materials are going to use. How are you going to like move things around? And she said it's like the most fun she's ever had. Like she absolutely loves doing this. So, you know, you can almost, you can definitely imagine people in the future who will definitely have these headsets like we're getting closer with the quest too i'm seeing so many people who had zero interest in vr just like tweeting about it and being like this thing's amazing vr is no doubt the future i'm like yeah i knew since like 2015 come on guys like it took you long enough so you can imagine these people is at home who have these ideas they have these projects maybe it's a remodel maybe it's you know designing their dream home just picking it up opening up this app and starting to do it so my thought process too is like i think there's another big opportunity on like the interior design aspect of it where like, yeah, you do have architects 
creating the um, the space itself. Maybe they can move things around, but I think there's a huge opportunity for the the like the remodeling of things and you know doing the interior design. I think that's what a lot of people really love. You know, so have you thought about that? Like bringing in uh, furniture. Like maybe I've seen like IKEA. They created like an AR app. So like th- these companies are trying to digitize their furniture and these things. So how do you think about that too? Do you think about integrating with them? Do you not really think about our, uh, furniture as much. I, I want to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, no, we do. And we are having conversations with some furniture companies to get That's their awesome. stuff to get their stuff in. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you can, so it's, it's like immediately basically like a virtual showroom for them. And it's like a win-win for everyone basically. But they can buy right through the app or at least have a yeah. list of it and then know where to get it. That's awesome. Yeah, I think there's yeah. a huge opportunity there. And especially even right now with AR, right? We're seeing that with the IKEA app and, and stuff like that. So you guys are doing a lot of AR as well. So like VR, I think, is like the the main the nucleus of everything. Because I obviously believe in it a lot. But I think AR right now is what a lot of people are focusing on because people have these AR enabled phones. We're getting like the iPad Pro, the iPhone 12 Pro. They all have these lidar scanners. So how does AR and using AR tools fit into your workflow? So there's a bit of a funny story actually about that. Um, we did, we did one AR project that it's in the stores, and then we did some smaller stuff um, that for like in-house use. They're not in the store, and I kind of knew from the beginning that like my heart is in VR. Like I quit my job and started a company for VR, and I'm still like a hundred percent in VR in terms of my personal needs and creative needs. Um, but we did this, this early AR project and it was great working on them, but I was a little bit disappointed on a personal level in terms of, I, I just really felt like VR has so much more power. And I was really interested in just going into another universe. Um, and for a while I said, we're not doing any more AR projects. Like I just wasn't so much into that. And um, there was another thing that kind of really bugged me with AR. Um, So many AR projects are kind of like a one-time thing. It's very, very hard to get replayability with AR. And that has been something kind of nagging me because I, I do want the highest level of replayability on everything that I do. And I designed them with that in mind all the time. So, you know, even this architecture tool, it's really designed for you to do things inside. And it's something you go back to again and again. Um, But how do you get that kind of engagement with AR? And how do you get past the initial like, oh, wow moment? You know, you, you basically have this like 10, 15 seconds of wow when you see the augmentation. But how many more times do you want to see exactly the same augmentation and again and again? Um, so I kind of hit a bit of a brick wall in terms of how what's the next step for us? You know, like we can keep doing this marketing ARs, but it's really like the 10 seconds wow. And then people just don't open it again. Like you can't get the same wow again. And you can like kind of animate things and mix things up a bit. But I, I actually still haven't seen in general, even looking at work that comes out of other studios, AR ideas that really get that replayability and really get that engagement. 
Um, so, so I was kind of like, okay, I don't see like a huge amount of potential and I, I, I don't have any ideas or see anyone come up with ideas to get past these issues. Um, until we got this AR project and collaboration with a museum. And what we are doing now with this museum is basically a game. So we're doing an AR game that is activating like an, like an area of the museum, like a, like a little wing of the museum. So for me, that's very architectural because it's like a virtual intervention into an existing built space which all of a sudden changes the conversation radically for me because it's not just about scanning a marker and you see a little thing pop up. It's actually, um, it's, it's almost like applying a virtual layer to an existing space. Specifically um, for that space, not just in general, like you can open up the app anywhere, specifically for that area. It's specifically yeah. for that area. So it's augmented, it's, it's, it's augmenting um, objects and architectural elements that are specifically in that area. It wouldn't make sense anywhere else. Um, and, and then it's a story, like it's a game, it's an actual cool. game. Like uh, you, you're searching for things and you're solving issues and puzzles. And there is an, like a, a narrative and a logic that actually moves you through a space, right? So it's not like a catalog where it's like marker after marker, mm -hmm. you actually have to move your body physically through space. So all of these ideas, I think, answer, or, or gave me what I was missing from the other stuff, you know, gave me, gave mm. me the excitement and the new kind of conceptual approach to what AR could be that completely got me back on the excitement track <laughs> about awesome. AR projects. That's really cool. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, too, because like, I think for me, too, after like, you know, wearing VR and trying it out, like AR doesn't excite me, especially phone based AR, right? That's sort of like the Google Cardboard of AR. So maybe have you tried like other headsets, like maybe the Magic Leap? Are you excited for like the upcoming Apple glasses? Do you think that will change things where it's like high quality head mounted AR glasses? Um, I tried the HoloLens one and two. And I've been very disappointed in both. Um, I did not try the Magic Leap, but I mean, honestly, they just need to be way, way better than what they are now. Um, I haven't even bought any of them. Um, if someone asks if we develop for them, we say, no, we don't think the technology is there. Um, we don't feel like we can deliver something that has like kind of flawless UX and stuff. Um, the field of view is like crappy. Um, so, so it's not, for me, it's not, it's not to a point where I can guarantee a client a high quality piece of software that runs on that device. Um, and until it gets there, I don't even want to spend time thinking about what I could do with it. Um, because yeah, I mean, if Apple comes up with something like a mixed reality headset, that's just amazing. and runs and works um and it doesn't have the limitations that we see with this other stuff um then i will totally like you know get one and spend some time thinking where i could go with it um but yeah i haven't i won't do that until i actually 
have the product on my hands and I'm like convinced. Yeah, totally. I think that's a pragmatic way of looking at it too because there's a lot of people right now that I, I know personally that are like designing um, AR apps for like iPhone 12 Pro using the LiDAR scanner in the hopes that they could either like port it over to a headset or at least start learning about the design principles early on before they actually have the headset. So like, hey, like let's start doing this early. Then when the headset comes out, then we'll be like ready. So I find it interesting that you do it the opposite way. Like, hey, no, show me the product, show me it works, and then we'll figure out how we can use it. And I think that's a great way of of going about it as well, though. Yeah, I um, I mean, to be honest, I did go through two or three years in the very beginning of VR development where I was super excited about everything. I was trying all the new SDKs. Um, hmm. I was experimenting with so much, doing all sorts of demos, like jumping on the latest stuff. And you can't do that forever. You kind of burn out. It was also mm -hmm. during the time when Unity was just buggy as hell. Um, it was also like the early days of SteamVR where I would just like spend half a day plugging and unplugging things out of my Vive in like certain order and then switch the order and reverse the order and then like restart everything in the opposite order. Um, and it was just a nightmare. And I kind of burned out um, because of the bugginess of it all. And I mean, now, now Unity, is, it still has huge issues, but it's, it's, it's way better than it was like five years ago yep. um, with, oh, yeah. with the first versions of Steam VR and, and like uh, HTC Vive. Um, and then I also, I also kind of, it's not like I lost enthusiasm for demos, but I'm, I feel like I've outgrown the like, the demo phase, you know? And I, I still see LinkedIn and Twitter being completely full of like cool demos, like cool hand tracking demos. And, yep. um, and I feel now I, I understand the gap between a demo, a cool demo that gets like 5,000 likes on Twitter and a product in a much more profound way than I did five years ago. So I, do, I don't see it as a loss of enthusiasm. I see it as growing up, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> being totally. a grown up in the industry now. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just think the, the, the gap between an exciting demo that gets traction on social media and a product is like, holy shit, like not even worth talking about it. <laughs> Totally. So, it's cool yeah. to see on Twitter, be like, oh, it's possible. And that's cool. Like maybe we'll see where it fits and it's a cool little demo. But like, yeah, I totally agree. Like I'm always waiting for like a new product or like even if it's a new great game or something that's like it's a full on thing. For you, what was the latest thing that you've experienced in VR that did have that wow factor that did kind of blow your mind? Um, I bought Spheres a few weeks ago. I know it's been around for a while, but I just got to do it a few weeks ago. Um, and the quality did blow me away. Like I know, you know, it's like narrated by Jessica Chastain and things like that. So, um, but I think it's maybe the best VR I've ever tried. And what blew me away was actually the cinematography. I think. I have never seen that level, like that quality of cinematography applied anywhere else because I feel like we've been seeing um, people coming from gaming. Most, most people who produce VR come from gaming. Then you have a small segment of people coming from theater 
than a small, I, I guess there are still people who do film, who do VR. Um, but for some reason, I mean, who, who was the director of Spheres? It wasn't Inaritu. It was um, another very famous director. That's kind of on the tip of my tongue right now. Oh, Aronofsky, Aronofsky, Darren Aronofsky was the prison. So, so I haven't seen any VR influenced by a director of that caliber of that nuance and finesse in cinematography. And it really blew me away. I mean, from, from like the, the, the synchrony between the animations, the sound, the color, Jessica Chastain's voice kicking in on exactly like the perfect note and the perfect time was just like bliss. Um, and it, it gave me a completely new perspective on what was my gold standard in VR, which is Half-Life, <laughs> Alex. <laughs> Yeah, and I kind of want to bring that up because I kind of thought that would have been your your uh, explanation, but it's interesting that it was fears for more of, of the cinematic quality because you did a, a great podcast with Kent By on Voices of VR about uh, Half-Life Alex. So yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, that came out a little, a little while ago as well. But yeah, what was your thoughts on Alex and why is that the gold standard? Because I think everyone's basically been saying that lately and, and it blew me away. I only got it for the first time a couple weeks ago as well. I tried it and I was like, holy shit. First of all, I didn't realize it was going to be that scary. And second of all, I mean, I've tried the other Half-Life games, but I didn't realize doing that in VR would actually freak me the fuck out. But it was a really cool experience and it was just like so polished and, and incredible. So I'd love to hear your thoughts as an architect and sort of as a spatial designer, why it was such a gold standard of a VR experience. So actually as an architect and as a spatial designer, I was not that impressed with it, right? Because in terms of architecture and environments, we're still seeing things that could be conceivable in physical reality, except for the end and except for the last chapter. So the last chapter is what I focused on in that commentary I did for Ken Bai. Um, so until you get to the end, you really don't see anything that plays on the characteristics of VR as a unique medium, you know, it's, um, but, but the level of polish, I think did show everyone how important that is, you know, how, how much, what, what, what kind of mental impact simple polish can do, you know, it, it can take you, simple polish can take you to a different mental headspace. And and that's when I feel like the entire VR community was like, damn, you know, not because any single thing that they did was necessarily like spectacular. Um, Cause uh, with the, with, with two exceptions, basically the Jeff chapter and the last chapter, which is what my commentary was on both these two chapters with those exceptions, I didn't feel like anything was particularly like, holy shit, wow, but just the, 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 the polish. And I think none, very few people expected for, for, for polish to, to just be so important, um, and which, which was also very scary, of course, for, for all of us, because we're going to be like, how are we ever going to match that? Um, but um, yeah, I, I, so I thought Jeff was just extraordinary. Um, that because I, I saw gameplay, 
that could only work like that in VR. I feel like the other stuff, like spectacular background, you're shooting stuff that kind of works on the screen as well. Um, with, you know, some things, you know, like you feel like you're loading the gun and you, you're hiding behind the thing so that there's some embodiment into that. But the core gameplay, you could do it, like you could shoot stuff on the screen. Um, whereas in Jeff, there was, um, there was such a psychological component to that gameplay that had to do with you being in the same space with this creature, which you can't shoot and kill. Um, that absolutely could not have been reached in any way on the screen, in any way. It would have been, you, would, you wouldn't have had any kind of gameplay in that chapter if it was just on the screen. Um, so that, that for me was, um, was significant and I'm glad they had that chapter and I thought it was just by far the most um, innovative part of the game. That's awesome. And so like for these, this is like more cinematic and I would say Half-Life was also like a cinematic type of game experience as well. Um, when it really comes down to it, it felt like you're sort of like in a movie, there's a story that kind of progressed. How do you think about like the more social VR experiences? Like, have you tried um, Facebook's Horizon? And I think a big part of that experience and that social aspect is going to be building virtual spaces people are going to be building their own like vr home there's going to be like vr spaces that people meet up with and there's going to be it's going to be the next version of like civilization right like, i think that's where like a lot of people are going and so and with facebook specifically funny enough i want to bring this up because i think it might trigger something really interesting i rewatched the social network like the movie the the facebook um movie <laughs> apparently people that work at facebook they just call it the movie they don't they actually hate <laughs> it that's besides the point but there was a part where justin timberlake's character was i think he was high on something but he was like freaking out about facebook before he made an investment he's like no it makes total sense like before you know we used to live in villages and in like huts and then we lived in towns and cities and now we're gonna live in the internet and it really seems like oculus and what's happened with facebook and that merger it really does seem like Facebook's next iteration and sort of the next the next stage of like civilization is going to be someplace on the internet. It's going to be like this 3D immersive world. So how much do you think of, about that? Of like designing these spaces that people are going to like basically live in, especially what happened with this year of people living at home and being locked down from COVID-19. More and more people were spending time online. And this year it's been mainly on screens. A lot of people have been getting the Oculus headset, but I do think in the future, most of people's time will be in VR. Like maybe that's just me being biased of being in the VR industry, but I truly think a lot more people are going to meet up in VR and have these experiences. So yeah, I just want to know how you think about designing those type of spaces because you mentioned it before, it's not going to be the same type of spaces that we have in reality and it shouldn't be. It should be very specific to VR and what you can achieve there versus the real world. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we will i have um i have two very good friends that are architects that have this um studio in london called um space popular and they refer to vr as the immersive internet um and they're trying to push this terminology instead of um what what do we call it um metaverse or something like that they want just to call it immersive internet um and i i think it's a fantastic proposal and 
Um, I actually think conceptually what Facebook is trying to do with Horizon is great, but of course it's covered in all this privacy controversy, um, which is very serious thing. But the concept of of having these virtual worlds where you meet with people, it's fantastic. And I don't know how we're gonna make it work and solve Facebook's issues. Um, but I do think we're gonna meet friends and do things together in VR. And I am working with some companies that have um, virtual platforms actually, and I am designing some environments for them. So, um, and I'm going all the way out in designing architecture that would never be possible in physical environments, uh, in physical reality. And I feel like that's the core of it. Um, I, I am a enemy of skeuomorphism. I can't stand seeing chairs in VR, doors in VR, windows in VR. I just, because I know the, I know the significance of those in real architecture. I mean, we put a window to get sunlight in and then we put a window and we put a wall because we want to keep like the cold out. So there's a very strong um, um, practical reason to why the wall looks the way it does and what, what is how it's supposed to perform and why a window looks the way it does and how it's supposed to perform. So as an architect, I'm super aware of that. And when I see these elements in VR, I'm like, this is a hundred percent skeuomorphism. Like you can't, you're trying to keep the cold out. <laughs> like it's just makes no sense. So you have to solve that in a different way. Um, and of course, the answer that everyone gives me because I keep pushing these um, apparently co highly controversial claims. Like I don't know why they're controversial, but the entire Twitter thinks they're pretty controversial. Um, <laughs> and then the answers I get back are go something like, "Well, but it's symbolism, so we want people to feel comfortable, and people are used to feeling comfortable in rooms that have windows, so we just want to replicate that." Um, and I'm okay with that, but I also hope we're going to outgrow our need to see windows in VR spaces. Um, right now, however, I have to say, I do not spend much time in social VR. Um, I have a huge issue with like low poly worlds. I mm -hmm. feel like I am stuck in a cartoon. I feel uncomfortable. Like I, yeah. I feel like low poly is very hard to, to do right, it's like a style, but if you want to be artistic, mm -hmm. it's very hard. You need like amazing talent and amazing artistic direction to get low poly feel unique and interesting. Um, as opposed to like right now in all the social VR worlds, we have like the default low poly style <laughs> yep. without oh, yeah. artistic direction. Um, and it's just the lack of the lack of shadows, the, the lack of real-time shadows just produces discomfort for me. Like my brain is struggling to process spatiality, to process, you know, depth when there's such a lack of, of real-time shadows and elements of that kind that is just uncomfortable for my brain to be there. Um, wow. So I avoid yeah. them. Yeah, and, and all the social experiences, and that's going to be Horizon included as like super low poly. That's interesting, though. I was going to ask you that if like it needs to look hyper realistic or it needs to look realistic. So for you, when you're obviously when you're presenting something that's supposed to be done in real life, like how 
much effort and how much do you put into the rendering of it to make it look like really realistic there's some great renderers out there like i just uh recently started looking into corona render and it blew my mind how realistic it looks it looks incredible so do you like use these kind of plugins to make sure it looks realistic obviously it's not really possible to really do that in, in vr but the one sample you posted recently on twitter looked pretty realistic it didn't look that low poly it looked pretty good and you said that you had it running in quest so do you make yes. sure it looks sort of realistic we tried the best we can um and we we give the number one priority in terms of performance for us always goes to shadows um in architecture I consider shadows a design element. So when I design, and I think if you look carefully at the last screenshots I posted of this application we did for the Quest, um, you will see that the real shapes actually get continued through shadow shapes. So when I design things, I also design the shadow that those things are throwing on each other and on the floor. Um, so it's never just the actual volume. Um, so, and then choosing carefully which shadows are baked and which shadows are dynamic and real time. Of course, we can't have everything be real time, but I think if you're strategic with that and you have some key elements that do throw real time shadow, um, it does, it goes a long way, um, into making this realism. So if I had to choose between that and very detailed textures with normals and normal mapping and whatever on them um and bumps and whatever i would always give performance more to to shadows that's kind of that's kind of where i put my money on um and then the other thing that i think i do a bit differently than um than these kind of shiny renderings you see both coming out of vr and traditional rendering software um i like things to look dirty and used i for me that's the second thing after shadows that gives it um believability and realism um and there there are tons of websites where you see people put these shiny renderings that just look so luxurious and you know they're taking a sunset next to how the building actually ends up looking. And in these renderings, people always, if you look at them, they, they for example, they render glass as transparent. And the reality is that in daytime, glass is not transparent. If the sun is out, you do not see through glass. Glass is reflective. Um, so there are just so many, like, you know, innocent lies that people put in those um in those renderings to make it look luxurious that i don't really do that and then i try to show my buildings the way they would look on like a muddy rainy october morning and i like to like splash mud on the bottom of like exterior walls and stuff um yeah i just love that like i i love to see buildings imaginary or not being kind of like used you know and if you can make your design look good when it's like not on the sunset and someone just like splashed on dirt on the wall and like the dog just peed on your main like front staircase and it still looks good and it feels like 
it belongs there. Like that for me is more lively and interesting than, than the other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I love that because it also, you know, when you're looking at like, even like video game assets or like CG assets, you know, the more used up and banged up you can make it look, it's going to look more <laughs> believable. Like it looks like it has like a history, right? It's not just this thing that just popped out of nowhere. It's like, no, there's a history. People used it. And it like maybe it, like you said, a dog peed on it. And it, like there was a dog that it tells a story. So I think that's awesome. I think like telling the story of that place is also super interesting. But where I want to go now is sort of like, I want to get into more of the entrepreneurship side of things but the business side. But before we do that, I just want to ask you where first, where do you go to like learn more about architecture? Like where do you, what do you go to kind of just like see what's new, what's happening? Where do you learn about new things? And then secondly, do you have any good resources that you can share with people who might might just be interested in this? They might want to read a book or read a blog. Where would you point them in the right direction? So I have some ideas I can share with you, but I have to preface that by saying that Architecture is a bit in a crisis right now. Architecture is actually notorious for always being in a crisis. Like even when I was in school, um, all my professors used to say we're in a crisis. (laughs) We're always in a crisis. (laughs) Um, In a crisis as in how does the discipline of architecture fit into the world, you know? And a lot of people are asking that question now as well. Like, given all the shit going on right now, how can we as architects contribute in a meaningful way? Because honestly, all we do is build things for rich people. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so it's, it's architecture, but in the sense, of course, architecture has always been a crisis because our clients have always been like dictatorships or rich people. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and then architecture is again, always in a crisis as in, we always fight about the kind of styles that we want to, you know, what's the, is it Gary? Is it Zaha? Like what's the latest style? So Trend. We have, yeah. yeah. So we have these two very conflicting things, right? On the other hand, we want to be socially and politically relevant and we don't know how. And on the other hand, we are very vain and uh, we just care about basically style and how the building is going to look at sunset and what color tiles we're going to have on the ground floor toilet. <laughs> so um, so this, this is still the case today. Um, but I feel like it's a little bit even more. It's, 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 it's gone up to the next level um, than, than it was when I was a student, for example. As in, you know, things like Black Lives Matter have really pushed this further um how can we as architects make a difference in that and architecture is notorious in terms of you know the number of people of color who are licensed architects it's like 0.6 or 7 or something um just like super super scary numbers um so there's a lot of a lot of magazines and websites and conversations that used to be entirely dedicated to this this more superficial stuff like what style are we using today and what's the latest color of concrete um to this other kind of conversations so so there's a lot of shifting and a lot of interesting things and there are also a lot of magazines that i was very into two or three years ago that now i don't read anymore because I feel like they haven't shifted fast enough. So I've kind of abandoned them, you know? Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of changed. Um, 
I also used to live in New York and go to a lot of physical events and talks and now I don't live in New York anymore and that's not possible. So a lot is online. So what I would recommend people is to um, just, just tune into a live talk. I mean, it's phenomenal that because of COVID, all of these talks you had to fly to New York to um, are now available live online or on YouTube. So I encourage anyone interested in architecture to like take advantage of this. It's like, it's like amazing. You would have never had access to those things just by sitting in your living room on a Saturday. Yeah. And not to mention some of the other media channels, like you mentioned, Frank Gehry, he has a masterclass, right? So you can sign up for masterclass.com. Unfortunately, this is not sponsored. I wish masterclass would sponsor this podcast, maybe in the future. But yeah, you can just go on online and you can go to like watch these videos and like kind of learn about it. And I really hope that the online events continue. I hope that they don't shift as soon as you know, it's safety like, hey, it's only going to be in-person events, I really hope they give you the option, whether that's live streaming the physical event, putting that on Zoom or YouTube. I really hope that continues because that's extremely empowering for people. Like there's so many conferences I attended this year online that I never would have otherwise. There's no, not a chance in the world. It's A, too expensive to fly here, there and everywhere to go to all these events. And secondly, like who has time for all that, right? Like it takes a lot of time to be able to do that. So yeah, that's awesome. I think so Your your main recommendation there is just kind of just search online, see whatever catches your attention and whatever's current because it's always changing, right? I mean, things like I'm sure things always change, but I'm sure the principles always apply. So where could people kind of learn a little bit more about the the principles that are like tried and true that like you still even stick to or try to in a certain way? Or were there certain books that like changed the way you think or were there certain people that you admire that you that you looked into? Uh, that's a very good question. I would say the basic 101 of architecture is still useful to learn about. Um, so for example, you might have heard of Corbusier, like the father of modern architecture. Um, he wrote some, like he has one book, like Verschen Architecture, that's like the Bible of modern architecture, uh, where he compares buildings to uh, ships in terms of their design and he's pushing he's pushing architecture towards that kind of um that kind of aesthetic so he would have in this in this book he would have side by side a picture of um like the paint uh, the the patreon and then like some kind of modern car at the in the like 19 1912 or something and he would be like look at this Look at this modern car. Look at this amazing aesthetic. Let's make architecture that looks like these modern cars. It's like these uh, these designers are producing amazing new styles, and we architects are still building with bricks. <laughs> we have to like enter the modern era. So, um, and he comes up with design principles that basically change the way we design and change the way cities look like. So he was the most influential modern architect. So it's still, I would argue, extremely valuable for people who want to learn the basics to, um, to read books like that. It will explain why when you go into a city that was built in the last 70 years, things look the way they look. 
is mostly because this guy came up with principles and styles that made everyone apply this. He was so convincing in his arguments. That's awesome. Well, I hope that you can be just as convincing in your arguments so people kind of move towards virtual design and start, you know, maybe that will really have a huge impact on how the world looks in the next hundred years, because I'm sure it will. The tools shape us and we shape the tools, right? As Marshall McLuhan says, if you're familiar with him, fellow Canadian media connoisseur, and that's exactly what it is, right? You're, we're building these tools. We have these VR headsets that are built by their companies and you build the software for it. And that in turn, you know, influences how you design the, the content for it. And it's just this huge feedback loop. So it's going to be so cool to see in the next even like 50 years how things are going to change. Like it's going to be mind boggling. And I hope I'm around uh, long enough to see the world completely change um, and look totally different. Because like, I agree, especially just being in North America, like it's some things are a little bit ugly here. I had, you know, even going to like some Asian countries, I got to see some really cool architecture. And that really draws me to the place. So I really hope we can see that um, play out. But yeah, I think the last little section of this podcast, because we've been talking a lot about design and, and architecture, which I think is incredible. But it's always on this backdrop of like, you started this company, you started Numina and or Numina, however, the coolest way to pronounce it. I want to know, first of all, where did you come up with that name? And what does it mean? Because before we get into the business side, I, I just need to know exactly um, your thought process behind starting that company. Yeah, I have. A, I love well, I, I love the story I have for this. And it's a real story 100%. Um, so as you know, I'm super into philosophy. I've always been into philosophy. And um, I started to read um, continental and German philosophy when I was pretty young. And I'm super into Kant. Uh, it's a bit of a paradox that I'm actually living in Germany now. Um, and basically Kant um, coined two concepts, phenomena and noumena. Phenomena is the plural from the English word phenomenon. Um, so that is things that we are able to witness through our senses. So a phenomenon is something we can see or hear um, or taste. And noumena, um, the singular is noumenon, plural is noumena, are the opposite of phenomena, which is things that maybe exist, but we cannot perceive through our senses um, because we don't have the senses for it or because we don't ha even have machines that can perceive these things that happen, maybe they don't even exist, but Kant had this term for it because he said, if there's phenomena, there has to also be noumena because uh, we're not God, so we can't perceive everything. And I thought that kind of matches VR because in a way you put this headset on and you see things you would not see with your regular vision and senses. So um, I just called the company noumena. That's awesome. That makes total sense. And that's so cool. That's such a great like origin story. That's why I love to hear the origin stories for some of these businesses, especially with really cool names like that. And I love that there's like a purpose behind it. You know, there's an actual reason for it. And it makes total sense. Um, that's so cool. So how did you get into starting the business? So you talked about, you know, quitting your job and then eventually starting it. I kind of want to hear the story behind that because you was it in America that you started the business and you started building it up when you're living in, in the US? No, I was, um, so I was in New York and then I took 
I took what I thought at the time was a year off uh, from corporate America. And I um, got a job in Stuttgart, also as an architect in Germany. Um, and I was planning on going back to New York, actually, after this one year in Europe. Um, but then I had the experience where I tried this VR thing. And um, I also met at the time what uh, ended up being my business partner. And I said, look, I want to, I, I have this idea. I have to somehow turn my life into this direction because I feel like I can't live without VR anymore. And this is what I meant to be doing. Uh, I know that sounds incredibly cheesy, <laughs> but that's kind of, that's true. Um, and then he said, um, yeah, let's, let's just give it a shot. Um, and he's German. Um, and he lives in a small town close to the Swiss border. And um, here he had some um, friends that have a design studio that were doing um, animations like Maya kind of animations. Um, and they started to have clients asking them about like new things and VR and stuff like that. So the first projects that we got were actually collaborations with this um, animation studio. Um, so they were doing, they were preparing the 3D models um, in Maya, and then we were putting them into VR and um, doing the, the coding for it. And that's also kind of the reason why we are in this tiny little town and we are not in like some big city um and it turned out quite quite well in the sense that what many people don't know is that the german industry is not like in berlin the german industry is actually in the south it's in baden-württemberg and bavaria so the two the two states at the bottom there's some in the north as well like around hamburg but basically cities like berlin are very known for like a rich cultural life but um, sometimes I heard some Germans joke by the fact that Ger uh, Berlin has like um, a negative like gross product. Like basically they, they just spend the money that, <laughs> that the German industry makes in, in other areas. So, um, so we ended up having a lot of industry clients um, and some big clients like BMW uh, for our custom VR applications. Um, and I think we wouldn't have gotten them if we were necessarily, you know, located in Berlin. Um, so that's kind of how it started. That's awesome. And that, and ever since then, you decided to just stay in that town. You didn't want to leave or go to a bigger city or even go to the US. And I guess now because it's easier, right? I mean, with remote work right now, everyone's working remote anyway. So it really doesn't matter where you're working. And I find that so interesting huge pillar for this podcast too. I love remote work and I totally believe in that as being the future. There's a huge place for VR in there as well. Don't even want to get into that because it's an entirely other conversation. But it's really interesting that you just stayed in this like small town. Like that's really cool. So what was your thought process behind just kind of staying and, and building up the company there? Well, this is where we got the clients. So before Corona people did care about us being um, closer. We did have in-person meetings with them um, and they wouldn't want to like spend a whole day driving to Berlin or to Hamburg. 
um, they did want, they, they were looking for a studio that is maybe within like an hour, two hour drive. Um, and then we even took part in some, um, what is the English word for it? My English, since, since I moved to Germany, my English has been, hasn't been great. Um, like, um, in, in, in Europe, a lot of companies and all state owned institutions have to do, um, like a public um, bid basically for projects. Um, so institutions like museums that are publicly funded have to do like a bid in the whole of European Union for projects. Um, and private companies don't really have to, but sometimes they choose to do it just because they get more, more, um, more projects and more, more proposals they can choose from. And a lot of those actually mention that your studio should be located within like a two hour drive from them. Um, so that was a big reason why we stayed here, right? Cause like our clients are here and our clients want us that we're within two hour drive from, from them. Um, now of course things are changing because of Corona. Um, but that's kind of why we, we, we stay for like three, four years in this place. Um, the museum project that we got, um, also specified that they're going to prioritize applications that are as close as possible to them. And it kind of makes sense because because the AR game we're doing is so location-based, we do have to drive there and test like all the time. Um, and I also have to say for a small studio that is building a brand, there are advantages in sticking to smaller communities because our brand is not like, like we're doing phenomenally well building our brand but is not at the point yet yet where i can like send an email to the head of the louvre and be like hey i want to do an ar game for you because i'm probably going to be ignored um maybe in a few years not but um but it's still easy to belong to a local community and to be the obvious choice for the museum of that local community do you know what i mean and we're trying to build a portfolio that way so as a strategy for us um it really made sense and it's it ended and it worked that's really cool see those are kind of things that i never would have known especially just like you know the way industries work in different countries um and especially the type of work right because like you said especially with your latest project with the museum is location-based you have to be there it makes total sense but what i find very interesting is like if you were to be just working on the product that you guys are working on, you weren't doing client work, then it really wouldn't matter where you work. And you can still be in a small town. You could be off a coastal island in Bali. Like, who knows? Like, you could be wherever you want because everything's connected by the internet. But that's so fascinating to me that it actually worked out because of the location that you guys were in. Yeah, exactly. And um, I feel like the... I feel like the conversation about startups and how startups work is so dominated by kind of the the stereotypical startup, right? Working on the product and, um, you know, Silicon Valley, at least now, thank God, we are hopefully done with like, you have to be in Silicon Valley. Um, But it's still dominated by, you know, some kind of standard stories. Um, And I'm very much interested for many reasons in alternative to that. and I also feel like one of the reasons why continuing to do client work 
um, and paying the price of being slow in the development of our product, which is a very high price to pay. But the reason why I'm willing to pay it is because being so close to people's needs and people's response to AR and VR is just so valuable to me, you know? Otherwise, I would be in a bubble in Bali, like you said, um, working for two years on my product. Um, and it's not like I would miss the market because I guess you always kind of test. Um, but for me, there is a, like a richness on being close to like what ordinary people think about this technology and how how like a 65-year-old museum visitor reacts to AR and VR. And maybe, you know, you would say, well, but that's not our target audience. The 65-year-old guy is not the one who's going to, it's not the future, is not going to, who's going to buy our product. But I don't know, for me, there's like a, a grittiness and, and a human nature element um, that I, I don't know, like I, I want to, I want to live and interact with people on this, I don't want to say low level, but I feel like, you know, in terms of the big narratives of like, oh, I've raised like 50 million bucks for my startup um, and I'm thinking big and I'm growing the next empire. It's very, very removed from what I love to do some days, which is go to the 65 year old and ask him how he liked my VR. And yeah, I don't know. That just makes everything for me more more grounded and 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 more real so i have days when i'm completely fantasizing about changing the history of architecture <laughs> and then i do have days when i just want to talk with regular people and and just i don't know see how they react and how they feel about it yeah totally and i think what's really cool is like you kind of brought it up which was like the alternative narrative to what most people see as like success in technology especially in the whole Silicon Valley um, landscape. Obviously, it's changing. A lot of people are leaving there, too. Like, I'm being, again, being on Twitter, we see it all the time. Seems like, actually, everyone's going to Austin, Texas. So maybe Austin is the next Silicon Valley. Even Elon Musk and Tesla and SpaceX are going there. So maybe that's the next hub. But it's cool that you can nowadays just be wherever you want, whatever makes sense for you. But, you know, also on the alternative the alternative narrative on entrepreneurship and in the modern sense right now is that like what I find fascinating is that you're doing such a great job with the business and like you guys have been getting so many great praise from what I've been seeing. You guys have been doing great work and you're obviously doing something really well. And what I find really interesting is yourself too, you know, being a woman in multiple, multiple male dominated industries like business in general like we see it so dominated by men um architecture too i'm i don't know too deep but from what i know um just having a family and friends in in that space i know that's also heavily male dominated and in vr and like gaming like i was also extremely male dominated so it's really cool that you're like on the forefront here you're putting your voice out there you're putting your your work out there and you know i praise that i think it's incredible because you know, even just being a, a man myself, I I am also aware that it's so fucking like just dominated by by men. So it's really cool to have alternative voices. And you also mentioned with the Black Lives Matter having more black voices too. And that's one of the reasons for the podcast too. Like I want to have every type of voice possible to get 
different, uh, you know, different aspects of the world, but also get different perspectives, right? So I kind of want to hear your thoughts and maybe your philosophies on being a woman in this industry, because maybe for me, being on the opposite side here, maybe it's not as big of a deal to you, but I, I definitely want to bring that up because it's such a big cultural point right now, especially in entrepreneurship. This for me is actually a very hard topic. Um, and I'm still exploring how I want to publicly approach this subject. Um, I've been asked lately quite often to talk at things like um, women awards in tech or to give this kind of speeches. And I'm always, I generally do it, but I'm always a little bit torn because, because of two reasons, because in my head, I kind of, I kind of, you know, they, there's like, so let's say there's an event saying, um, like a best woman in mobile apps award. And if you turn that into like the male version, like best male in app development, it sounds ridiculous, right? Like we don't, we don't award males for being the best male in development. That's kind of like a given. Um, but so, so, so part of that is like, I don't want to be judged according to other women. I don't want to discuss the fact that I'm not a man because in the field that I'm in, it's not relevant. So honestly, unless we're talking about like reproduction rights, it's not relevant that I'm a woman. Um, but on the other hand, I also agree with people who say we do need these events because we do need to somehow bring more women to the forefront. So I'm torn. Um, and but on the other hand, like you mentioned, architecture. Yeah, I mean, being a young architect and female in New York has been brutal sometimes, um, like totally brutal. And there been even been occasions where like I was in a meeting and I was like leading the meeting as an architect and guys around me would turn to me and ask me to bring them another coffee like in the middle of the meeting. So those things do happen. Um, so part of me says, look, let's not discuss the fact that I'm a woman. It's not a discussion about reproductive rights or like female organs. So let's, I don't want to talk about it. On the other hand, I'm like, well, we do have to talk about it because obviously I'm having a different experience than a guy. Um, and I, at the end of the day, I don't understand why. Um, so, so I'm still figuring out how to, how to approach it basically, but at the core, um, I've started to sometimes tweet about something that I'm totally fascinated about, which is, um, gender in virtual avatars. And I feel like that's a bit of, that's, that's kind of a, a little, a little, a little side entrance maybe into the topic that I feel more comfortable with. So. I post sometimes some tweets that go something like this. When you are in VR, do you feel your gender? Do you feel like you're male or female? Because really in VR, like you don't have your body. So you really don't have your gendered organs or anything. Um, and you could choose whatever avatar you want. So, and, and the, the reason why for me is fa that's fascinating is because I, since I was, a small child, I never thought of myself like in, in this, my mental space 
or in my interactions with people that are like not romantic sexual interactions as being male or female. Um, and for me, that's been natural. And actually, the brain, like I've, and I've read tons of studies about this, the brain is not gendered. Um, abstract thinking, so abstract thinking is not gendered. Like no one has, I haven't found any study that show any differences between male and females in terms of abstract thinking. So I, I'm like, when I'm discussing philosophy with someone or VR, I do not feel male or female. And I know some people will disagree with me. Some people will say, no, there's like a female perspective to VR development. Like, I don't, I don't feel any kind of female perspective to any of these topics. Um, and in VR, I, I, I would either choose a non-humanoid avatar. Um, like, my preference is a non-humanoid avatar because it's not only that I don't feel male or female in VR. I don't particularly want to feel human in VR in terms of my body. I don't even understand why I need to have two hands and not five hands, to be honest. Like, it's just very silly to me. And the answer is always the same answer I get for why we have windows in VR, which is because people are used to it. Um, for me, I'm like, I want to jump into VR. I'm not a man. I'm not a human. I don't want to have two hands. I want to have these five hands and two heads. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, ideally, we would move past labeling of any kind. Um, but the issue at hand is that discrimination does exist. So we have to, I just feel like sometimes the way the, the, the discourse is brought up pushes towards more labeling. So I'm personally looking for ways to speak up against specific discrimination against women, which I am, I've experienced and I'm familiar with, but without pushing into more labeling and into more like boxes, like we are women and we are here and these are men and these are here because I don't think there's any difference when we're having this kind of conversations. That does make sense. Or did I just like dig myself oh, no, into that... a hole? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was like, I think the philosophy that you have on that is spot on and it's very similar to how I feel. And I think I'm in the same boat where it's like, it's hard to bring up those conversations because some people can take it the wrong way. I, I don't know if I've told you this before on our other call, but I literally had someone like say they do not want to be on the podcast because I accidentally said female entrepreneur instead of like a woman entrepreneur. She like sent me articles on like why that was wrong. I'm like, okay, like you're just perpetuating that. Like I'm trying to have a healthy conversation here because like you said, like I don't want, I waited specifically till the end of this conversation to even bring up this topic because it's exactly as you said, it's like, I don't care what the gender is of the, of the person starting a business, you know, working creatively. Cause when you're drawing, when you're doing any kind of VR, when I play guitar, I don't feel like a man. I don't feel like, um, you know, the gender is nothing. It has nothing to do with that. Right. Especially when you put on the headset, right? Like and you're in VR, I totally agree with you there. Like you, there's no real gender unless you want to put on, um, you know, a virtual skin that signifies that you are male or female. So I totally agree there. But then I'm also aware of the reality, right? I mean, there's always a huge gap between what we want to happen and like what the reality is. And that also happens because it's a different um, generation before us too that had perpetuated things. There's been narratives and, you know, the way society had been built up in like the 50s up until now. I think we're reaching this paradigm shift now in so many different ways. 
that I think like we're going to get on the other side because there's more people that think the way that we do now. We're seeing way more transgendered people. So people aren't even talking about that. Like, do we give out best transgender in VR? No, that's not an award. Like, that's weird. Like, why does it need to be that way? It should just be, okay, like best mobile app. It's about the project at the end of the day, not the person who made it really. Because I think personally that your project, you should, I mean, there's always a level of egoness, right? With any creative field, there's some ego involved. But I think when you bring in the idea of gender is that's just like another layer of ego, right? Because you're more like self-aware in this like physical sense of like, I am a man in this body, in this world. Whereas like you said, when you're in VR, you're just like this fucking floating like consciousness. Like what the hell even is this body? Yeah, we're born into this, but you know, now we have these technologies can help you kind of like um, get, get out of that. And I'd like to see more experiences where the gender roles are reversed. Like I want more, like I do want to have female centered experiences, not just because like there should be no gender in VR, but because now I can sort of feel what it's like to be a woman in a situation potentially. Like, I don't know how deep you can really get with, with VR in that sense, but I think it is just a reality of just, you know, being human too. Like, yeah, there's, male and female and the sexual anatomy but i totally agree when it comes to creativity and like just like the the godlike powers that we have as humans i don't think it should really matter so i I just love to ask these questions to hear different people's philosophies on this because i think like some of it is so unhelpful but i think like the way you approach it is spot on and fantastic and i hope that uh that conversation can continue on because it's just it's just the reality of the situation right so it's, it's interesting that we people can have better conversations now on this topic. You know what the beauty of VR is also in this context? Um, when I ask this kind of stuff on Twitter, um, you know what most people answer? They say, I, in VR, I still feel male because most of the VR community is male. So I, that's what most of the answers are. I do feel male. But that's a good question. I haven't thought about it like that before, which is really phenomenal because people are like, yeah, yeah, I am male in VR, of course. I'm a guy all the time, no matter where I am. That's like, that's how most people approach things. Um, But wait a second, maybe I should think more about it. Um, And that wait a second, I should think more, that already introduces this. drop of not doubt but like you know it opens a little door that for me is um is very hopeful yeah because it's the idea you don't know what you don't know so when you raise these kind of questions like oh i never thought about it but now the next time they go into vr they might think about it maybe in the back of their mind maybe not like you know front of mind but that question now exists in their reality yeah exactly and like I I also feel like there's um it's 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 like it's been absolutely amazing to see um people that are transgender get more support and you know like little kids who like little boys who want to be girls and girls who want to be boys and and many families embracing that and saying look that's okay my personal childhood was filled with bewilderment at the fact that my grandmothers and my mom would always say to me, oh, don't do this or wear this because you're a girl. And that was like such a, I was so confused my whole childhood. Not because I felt I'm not a girl and I'm a boy. I just, because I didn't understand like why, 
why does that have to do with what I have to wear? Like, it just felt random to me. Like there, for them, it was an obvious reason for why I should wear a particular thing and not the other thing. For me, it just seemed like random. Like you just randomly decided that I shouldn't do that because you call me a girl for some reason. Like when you're like five years old, like you don't really know, honestly, like you don't even know that there's like, you have different organs than a five-year-old that is a guy. Like you just, you do not know that. You do not understand what sexual organs are. So I was so confused. I was, why do you call him a boy and me a girl? Like what makes us different? Because I just didn't know he has different organs. I didn't know. And I was quite old. I mean, by the time I found out. (laughs) So I was so confused, so confused my whole childhood. And this whole gender thing just seems so random to me. Um, So it's actually liberating for me, honestly, to be in VR and to have a male avatar if I feel like it or to have a non-humanoid avatar because I feel like, in a way, my true form (laughs) is not necessarily male or female unless it's a sexual context, right? But if it's not, then I I don't want to be called male or female. Yeah, totally. And I think like, especially in VR, like you have that option to because like I said, you're almost like the floating consciousness with just with like a skin on it. And I think it's just easy for people to, to label things because it's just easier for them to kind of make sense of the world because like, realistically, like we're probably in some sort of like, VR, like, you know, some sort of like, you know, the holographic universe, they call it. So like, if we get super philosophical there, it's like, it's just like, unfortunately, in this virtual reality, we're kind of stuck with this. So I totally agree with it being super liberating in VR, where you can kind of choose whatever avatar, whatever your body is that you're in. But I'm also interested to hear, just after all this philosophical talk, have you ever done any kind of psychedelics, if you're open to talking about that? Because I think, you know, psychedelics and VR, there's a lot of parallels there. And there's a lot of things where I'm thinking of, I'm like, hey, like, if you've ever done like a, a large amount of mushrooms or like LSD or anything, like, do you feel male or female? Like at a certain point, you just feel like the entire universe. So like, uh, are you open to talking about that? Have you ever had any kind of experiences like that? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I'm open to talk about it, but um, I've never had psychedelics because I I always felt I don't need them. I I have lucid dreams all the time and I can meditate and go into like deep states like super fast. Um, so I can like float and do shit like that, like super fast. Um, so I feel like I have lived like outer states of consciousness, but just by, I feel like I, I've, and I've, I've had this ability since I was extremely young. Like I, I haven't trained it in any way. I feel like my brain structure, like it's just born like that. Um, but I can... I can basically just occur to me much later in life that not everyone can do that because I run into some websites that teach you how to go into like theta brain waves and whatever. Whereas I was like, oh, I can just do that. <laughs> um, so I've I've like seen stuff and done stuff in this deep meditation states, and I feel like. It has a hundred percent, it's a hundred percent the reason why 
VR was such a such a had such an impact on me. Basically, it's why I said, okay, I I need to quit my job and do this thing, um, because as a child, I've always, I mean, I've always been labeled as a very quiet child, when in reality, I was spending hours a day either in lucid dreaming or in these deep meditative states, doing like crazy stuff. Um, and I could not communicate that because as a small child, you like, it's not like I had the drawing skills to like draw it or I could like, you know, 3d model it. Um, so I was kind of stuck in this private world. Um, and VR was totally like, holy shit. Now I can like do that. So I think it was, it was the match in that sense. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I've not done psychedelics, but I've done come maybe I've come, I've come close to what other people describe as psychedelic experiences. That's cool. No, I think there's a lot of people I've spoken to that have said the same thing. They're like, you know, it's the Salvador Dali. Like I don't do drugs. I am drugs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's really cool. And it, it makes sense that you would go into this profession and start this company because now you have sort of like the tools that you didn't as a child, right? To be like, hey, I can actually visualize this and not only visualize it, but now I can invite others into this lucid dream. And that's kind of how I felt it. Like when I was first getting into VR, I think it was like Oculus DK1, DK2. Um, that was around the time I was really into like psychedelics, yes, but also like this is also university years. So you're experimenting with a bunch of different stuff, but also lucid dreaming too. Like I felt like, you know, being very creative as a child as well. and being able to be hyper visual, um, it, it lends yourself to wanting to go to a visual medium. I think like VR is like the most visual medium, right? Auditory as well. I mean, with the sounds as well. And on that note, I, I don't know if my research is correct in some of the podcasts that I've been listening to, but it's true that you also have synesthesia. Yeah. And this is also something that I've learned quite late in life because, you know, it's not exactly something that's taught in school, although I wish it was. Um, yeah, like I've, I've realized that, for example, um, I experience sentences and speech as like volumetric things. So when I write, for example, if a sentence feels right, it has a certain like volumetric profile. They're like heels. And when something doesn't fit into a sentence or doesn't communicate a meaning in a way that satisfies me, there's something wrong with like the terrain of that sentence. Hmm. Um, and there's almost some like a other... music visualizer, so you can like visualize the waveforms. Almost, it's like I feel it. It's like if I close huh. my eyes and I, 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 and I would like move my hand on top of some kind of topology that's volumetric. I don't see it actually. Cool. It's it's like um like I feel the volumes and I feel where they they don't like match. Um and I also do it uh, well I do it with with sounds and music like I I see things but in general everything in my brain is like super spatialized. And sometimes it's spatialized as in I feel these volumes and sometimes it's super visual. Uh, but absolutely anything that goes on in my head um, is in like a spatialized area. Um, and that's how I process all, 
all information, which makes it very difficult to answer things like sometimes people ask me, what's your creative process? And that's so hard to answer or to answer in a way that would make sense for other people because I have these landscapes in my head and they they are a accumulation of different types of information. So these land these volumetric landscapes would have sound information and conceptual information and philosophy ideas and visual stuff um, into one landscape. So for me, a project or a concept or an idea, it's a spatial landscape. And I do work in that landscape. Like I go and I move things around. And for people that do not have this kind of brain structure, it's really impossible to to understand, I think. Um, so sometimes I feel like my creative process, it's really not something that can be useful to other people, you know, because it's really about the structure of your brain. And I feel like this is also another topic that is not discussed enough, you know, um, how different our brains are in, in dealing with this information. Because honestly, like, I don't even know if there are a lot of people with my type of brain or not that many people. I just don't know. And sometimes I try to ask people and I get like weird looks. Uh, sometimes people that's how you know for sure they have no idea (laughs) yeah Yeah. and sometimes i would ask people like what do you see inside your head um and they don't understand the question they're like i don't understand the question so then i think like well those are more like the sound people that don't really see things um like i have a i have a, a a close friend and i had this long conversation with him um about what he sees in his head and he's like, I don't see anything. Um, I just, I organize things in a totally different way. And then I would ask things like, well, what's the color of the background in your head? And he's like, I don't understand the question. And I was like, you don't have like a background for the things in your head. Like I always have like a background that's like a certain depth and a certain color. So I ask these kind of questions and I'm always extremely fascinating when I hear that people have such drastically different ways of thinking of things. And I think this is not discussed enough, especially in the context of all the creative tools that we're getting these days, right? Because you have, I don't know, like Jaira and Miro and, you know, all this stuff. And I'm very fascinated, actually, with, with how people with different brain structures use these tools and how they make them fit into their creative process. Does this make sense or am I like babbling? No, this makes total sense to me. I don't know about some people listening who don't really think about this, but this is stuff that I think about all the time. It's like exactly, it's like the tools for thought, right? It's like clearly you're very spatial. So it makes sense that you're a building a tool that is spatial and you're able to think that way. So it makes total sense to you. What I find fascinating is how that will help enhance other people who don't think that way, who are not spatial, but now they can don on a headset and suddenly they can think the way you do. When you close your eyes, you can see that, but they need something externally to show them. Like for me, like I don't think in numbers, right? Like I, I just can't, like I'm just not a numbers guy. I'm sure you're a little bit more than I am because you think in like code and you like to code. I am hyper visual 2D and 3D where, for example, we, we spoke about this before, where like, I don't want to code a website. I want to use Webflow. I want, to sh- I want it to look like how it's supposed to look like when it's done, 
just drag things around, resize. I wanted to see how it looks. So I, I think about it that way. Then there's other tools like Notion out there that I think are really cool um, that really helped w- with my team, especially with the productivity side of things. Because I don't know if you've played around with Notion or have used it, but their database tool um, in particular is really cool because what you can do is it starts off as like a database. It looks like an Excel. You know, you get your rows and columns. It looks like that. Then what you can do is create different views for that same data. So where one person might want to look at the table and they want to see like an Excel spreadsheet, someone like me might want to see like cards, like sort of like that Jira or like Trello cards. And I want to I want to move things more visually. And now they have like timeline views. So you can now attach a date to that same data. Now you can see it in the timeline. So I'm really excited to see how that's going to turn out when it comes to like 3D tools, right? We're like, I think with what you're doing right now is is a perfect example where someone who's not that visual can now get to that same level, well, not same level. It's that's not the right way. They can experience the same sort of thing that you're thinking by you transforming what's in your brain into a type of medium that then they can then experience. Which is why drawings were sort of like the the main way that people have done that for thousands of years which is why i guess architects still do it right it's the only way that they can like take what's in their brain put on a paper that someone else can kind of understand but now it's going to be in 3d like fully experiential so it's going to be crazy like the next iteration of that is going to be like brain chips we're like hey here experience my year in 2016 press a button that they just experience an entire year in like a second somehow that's super sci-fi but i'm sure that could eventually happen it's just inputs into certain neurons which i think is fucking fascinating this is getting on a crazy tangent but i think like that to me is fucking really cool like it's 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 exactly it it's the tools for thought and how those shape the the way that they think so has there been any tools i'll let you kind of chime in there but then i would follow up to as like if, if there's any tools that you can think of or that you've been using that have done something similar for yourself um so i to, to your earlier point, I don't think we need to even wait to have brain implants or a brain-computer interface. I think even some of these productivity tools are actually going to start to help people think in different ways. I haven't seen any that's making that claim. The claim that they're doing is, I'm going to help you be better and faster and organize what you already have. Um, but I, I'm hoping the wave is going to come where they're going to take the next step. And it's not just about organizing what's in my head. It's about changing how I'm thinking, right? Um, I feel like we're on the cusp of that. So, so that's going to be like the wave coming, uh, riding these new technologies. Um, so so it's, 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 a, it's, it's a brave claim, but that's what I'm waiting for. Um, whether or not I could make that claim with what we're working on, I don't know. I've never thought about it in that way, actually. You gave me some food for thought. Um, but yeah, do you know what I mean? I feel like we do have that. Um, we just need to pump up this exactly these kind of conversations about helping people understand a this very deep level, what's the structure of the brain? First of all, admitting that people have different kinds of brains and think in different ways. Um, And then I really think even something like Notion has the power to make that claim um, if it's wrapped in the right way um, and done in the right way. Um, So 
so yeah, let's see what happens because I'm, 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 I'm I mean, I, I'm getting a little bit like bored to be honest by all these, oh, I'm going to make you work faster. I'm going to make you organize things better. Like, like, come on, just like make, take the next step. <laughs> yeah. Have you heard of Rome, Rome research? I have listened to one of your episodes where the, the guest talked a lot about Rome. I think he's having some, he developed some kind of course about Rome. So I know because of your episode about Rome. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it's just my side of Twitter, but like a lot of the people that I, I follow that are on the tools for thought sort of Twitter, they've been, you know, saying and claiming that, yeah, Rome has actually changed the way I think it's um, like a note taking app that, I mean, they don't want to be called a note taking app, but it's networked thought. So the idea that, you know, you can have a document, basically, that an idea can then connect to another idea, and that idea can connect to another one and vice versa, bi-directionally. So it's not just like a notion or like, you know, the internet right now where you're linking out to another page and that's about it. But then that page then references back towards the original document. So apparently, again, I don't really use it. Uh, I want to find a use for it. But apparently, that's a tool that actually has been changing the way people think. So I, I'm on the same boat. Like, it's crazy to see these tools, like I mentioned before, the Marshall McLuhan uh, quote, which is like, you know, we create the tools and the tools create us or they shape us. And it's so true, like the tools will shape us. And they have been like, look at the computer, like, look at how we interact with the world, like technology totally shapes the way we think. But I agree, we need to start with the simple fact that all brains are different and people do process information differently. Because that's all it really is, right? Where it's an information processing machine. Well, we don't talk about it. That's the first issue, right? We sell everything in terms of it, it increases your productivity or it will save you this much money or you, you use this um, construction administration SaaS and it will... It will cut down the irregularities in the construction process by sixty percent, right? Like that's the terms that we use it. That's the because, but you know why? Because that's the kind of metrics we can actually collect, right? Like it saved you ten thousand bucks this month um, because you made less mistakes on the construction side. That's that's something we can quantify. That's something we. Um, have confidence in that's something we can show investors and get investment money you know if you start to make claims like um johnny said it changed the way he thinks about something you know that's just like not as compelling as you know it increased your productivity by 68.2 percent <laughs> um so so i feel like it's subjective territory that people shy away from um but it has enormous potential, right? That's the holy grail to have people think in different ways. And I think a lot of these productivity tools have been doing that. We just don't really talk about it or don't have proper way to measure it and to like document it. Um, but of course, software has been changing the way we design. Um, it's, just, it's just a very hard conversation to have. Um, when it comes to me, um, I don't know. It's kind of like an ongoing thing. Um, I still think of my own creative process as being very different than what the team does. And I think in a way that's always going to be like that. So I, because I have this kind of convoluted mind, um, I, I, do, I do reach 
conclusions sometimes and design decisions that I can't really fully communicate to the team. So in a way, in a way, my brain, I think, will always be to some extent a black box that has to then somehow interface with the team. Um, so then, then we actually use like Jira, Confluence, and Miro right now. Um, and and but I I don't think I don't think of them as tools that organize me. I think of them as the communication tool between the black box that's my head and the rest of the team. Totally. It's the shared reality of everyone else's brain. It's like, hey, we all agree that like this means that, like especially if you're using like Miro and you're drawing certain shapes, it's just, hey, we all agree. That's a fucking triangle. You can't tell me that's not like, and then you can at least have a conversation now because it's something that everyone agrees on. Same with language, right? If, if you decided to start speaking German and I'm still speaking English, it'd be very hard to have this conversation, right? So I think those kind of tools are like the language, right? It's like, hey, just like, it's not the best. It's not like the best thing we could possibly do, but it's something. It's something that allows us to have that conversation as a team. And there's something that, I mean, actually, I think you might have good insight on this. Um, I watched a while back, I watched some YouTube tutorials on Notion, right? To figure out like, is this something I want to look into or not? Um, and there are all these people that seem to be really using it to micromanage their life. And that yeah. scared the shit out of me. I was like, oh really? my God, like, like that looked like hell to me. Like micromanaging your life to that extent. Like I thought it's unreal. I thought this like, <laughs> this like YouTube videos are like fake, but then they had like <laughs> 3 million views. So, so, so I was like, whoa. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Uh, and then, um, man, I forgot his name. You had this, you had this um, guest on a podcast, the guy who talked about Rome. I really apologize for Nat, not remembering Nat Elias. Yeah, yeah, Nat, yeah. exactly. And then either he said it in a podcast, in, in, in your episode, or I looked something, um, one of his YouTube videos or something, but there is a sentence he says that, I, that was just like bang on the money for me. Um, he talks about how he gets to write all these uh, articles for his blog. And then he says, the key to just writing every day is you need to have the writing itch. So it's like, if you have the itch, it just flows out of you. It just like, things just come together. And that is how I do my best work. Like when I have a creative project that can be like a huge project, like a big VR thing that's in development for like six months, um, there are moments where I have this itch where the puzzles just like click, click, click in my head and it flows out of me and it's like fucking perfect. Um, so there is some magic in the black box that I can't put my finger on it. And, I, and for me, at least... His exact sentence is like, you just need the writing itch. You need like this creative itch that pulls it together. Um, basically, micromanaging every second of your life with Notion would like kill and like scratch any itch on your, on your brain before it even has a chance to like 
form. <laughs> that's how I that's how I see it. I feel like it's a bit dangerous for some people. So interesting. Um, that's an interesting way to think about. It. I never thought about it that way. It, you're saying it scratches the itch before you can actually yes, realize. Yes, it. yes. It's uh, like you have it's like you have micro itches, right? But mm-hmm. none of them is big enough to like like make make the article or the project the idea just like flow out of you because you are like full of it it's like micro things and then you like use notion to like arrange things and make uh, connections this word on page five and this word on page 20 connected to the article i read two days ago and it's kind of like i don't know for me i feel like it would be over just overdoing it you know where like i i feel like you have to you have to let the magic of the black box sometimes do the work. You know, it's that thing. Give your brain, give your brain something to work on before you go to bed and and wake up in the morning. And it, you, it probably like your brain like cooked up something. I'm a big believer that the brain thinks of things and knows things and processes things that it doesn't share with us, right? Um, because I've had so many, so many moments where amazing like my best ideas ever just clicked into place without me notioning it or doing anything just clicked into place so i feel like what tools like that um downplay or don't take into account are is this creative power um they 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 are based on the idea that if you only organize things well enough and if you only make the right connections like rome right if you only make the right connections between all these things you read in the last month you will see the connection and the tool is going to make that connection happen whereas i think there is that's not exactly how creativity works like your brain will make that happen. Your unconscious will work on it and let you know when it's ready by giving you the itch. And when you get the itch, like the article will just flow out of you and it will be perfect. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think just to bring back up what Nat said on there, he said something on the podcast that really, really connects to what you just said, where he says he thinks of like when he's working in Notion, that's like manager brain is on. When he's in Rome, that's creator's brain is on. Which for you, that might be, I'm in Unity, creator brain is on. If I go back to Notion or in your case, Jira, manager brain is on. And I think that as an entrepreneur too, and like managing people and, some, and sometimes managing yourself, you have to be like a manager, but there's a difference between managing and then like micromanaging. Like you said, it's like, don't micromanage at all. You need just enough, just enough so that like when you come back a week from now or like you go on a week vacation or your team goes away, they can remember what happened, right? To be like, hey, yeah, you were supposed to do that thing. Well, if you never wrote it down, you don't really know, right? If you don't give it a date, it never happens. But it's switching between manager brain and maker brain. So for me, like I'll journal, I, I journal in Notion. So it's not really like managing and that's not micromanaging. I just like have a blank sheet. I'm, like, I'm just going to, I just need to do a brain dump this morning. There's too much going on, needs to go out. But then I think you can go into like a manager mode where it's okay, like we're going to write the scope of this project because like you still need to do that. You still have to be like, hey, let's stay on scope. We got to do this, this, and this. It's going to cost this much money don't really want to go over budget and then okay manager modes off turn off notion don't even look at it open up unity open up autocad whatever you're using and just go for it and for me i even schedule like playtime do you do you schedule like playtime for yourself to be like hey like we talked about you know experiencing vr things i just say hey this hour i'm just gonna play guitar or i'm just gonna go in vr and just play a game i don't care about creating 
And I think letting your mind wander like that also also helps. Totally. I don't do enough of that. Um, I should do more of that. I mean, I I try to write and do like, I write and I do some projects that are kind of, I don't know, artistic that have nothing to do with Numena and work. Um, but I should, I, sh- I should do more of that. I think I also, it also strikes me that what I just said about the creative process is something that's actually incredibly hard to teach, right? You people, people like to teach things and people like to know that there are ways in which they can be taught to be more creative. They can be taught that an or a tool to organize your thoughts will, will lead to better ideas and better output. And they don't like to stay, like, I don't know how people would react to me or what the result would be if I say, just read 50 articles and then wait. Don't put them in Rome. Don't use anything. Just wait. Your brain will tell you, like, you're, uh, because, uh, I mean, it might or it might not happen, like, but that's not something you can, like, you know, in good honesty, just give us an advice that sounds ridiculous even though i do think that's kind of how it works (laughs) your brain will just cook it up like you said just go into meditation go for a nap it'll cook it up your brain people don't give their brains enough credit you know give it where give it the credit where it's due so this has been awesome we've got on so many topics so many different ideas and this has been such a fantastic conversation i kind of want to wrap it up with two main questions I love to end these podcasts off on. And the first one is just like, based on all the projects you're working on, you talked about your creative process too. What are some challenges that you're currently facing? Whether that's with the business, personally, what are some of the things that have been on your mind as a challenge that you're trying to work through? Winning the fight of finding a place in the world for myself and for my product. Because I'm, I'm seeing a lot of examples of more like what I call like standard examples of how you build a company and who you should be as a CEO and so on. And I don't feel like I fit into any of those things. Like I'm not making an app that's going to increase anyone's productivity by 60%. If anything, I'm making an app that's going to like just destroys everyone's productivity for a while until they figure out how to use it. Um, and then it's going to take them into like what I think is like the next phase in architecture. Um, but it's not like there's a line of people wanting to buy that kind of stuff. So, so what my proposition in terms of what I'm contributing to the business world and to architecture through this product, it's not something that I see that many people or anyone doing. And that is actually, it's, it's like 2% an exciting place to be, uh, but 98% a very scary place to be, right? Because it's like, how do I fit in? Um, does this even make sense? But in the same time, I'm convinced that this is kind of like, again, I'm, so, I'm going to sound cheesy, but that is kind of my life's work and what I'm supposed to do. But um, but it's a very big unknown whether it's going to this product is going to find a place. Um, and of course, we're testing different ways of positioning this product and, and dealing with different targets groups and super targeted groups. Um, but it's fundamentally a very scary place um, to be. And um, and yeah, I feel like that's kind of the biggest challenge and also the biggest 
excitement. So I don't know, let's talk again in 10, 15 years and see how this <laughs> turned out. <laughs> well, I'm excited to see in like a year or two after it launches and you have a beta and you, you, I think things change quicker than you think when you find your core audience and or your core users, right? You're like, hey, I had no idea these people wanted to use it that way. Maybe it becomes more of a consumer than a professional uh, type of tool. You just don't really know until you put it into the hands of people that you think might use it. But I, I, I think we talked about it before. I think it's really fascinating that you're building the company in that way because most people start from the opposite, right? Like, hey, let's find a business problem or can we increase productivity somehow and have like a business use case for it? Whereas yours is more of like a creativity thing. But one thing I will say, I'm not going to try to solve any problems, but one thing I will say is that when the founders of Adobe first launched Photoshop, everyone was like, who the fuck's going to use that? Like, why would you ever need to edit a photo? Look at 2020. Who doesn't Photoshop their photos, right? So that should give you some some reassurance that like, you know, the scarier the thing that, that you're doing and like the bigger, biggest, hairy, audacious goal that you have or the project usually will result in something really good. There'll be some kind of byproduct out of it at the very end of the day. And hey, if you and your team get use out of it and you guys are doing really cool work with it yourself, hey, then it becomes a proprietary tool. And then your studio side of the business becomes exponentially more um, way bigger, right? Because no one else can do what you can do. No one has the black box of your brain and the way you think. Like you have total monopoly on that. Like there's no way anyone can compete with you in general. Like there's, there's just no way. And then cherry on top and the spice around that is this new tool that just your team has access to game over us like people making pixar movies before anyone else had maya right it's like no one else can even compete so there's a lot that to be said about just building internal tools if you know you don't find um uh, an audience but i wouldn't be worried about that yet because you haven't put it in front of the user you gotta just put it out there and uh and see what they do so i don't know if that helps at all i'm not gonna try to solve any problems but what i like to do is just give you more ideas so then maybe that can soak in when you go to sleep and they're like oh i had new ideas so who knows? On the flip side of all this, though, I want to end this off on a high note. What is something that you're excited about? What is something that you're really looking forward to or super excited about? New architecture. I want to see new architectural styles being born. And to defend the people that are going to say, okay, but that's kind of shallow, I'm going to say that. In history, whenever new architectural styles were born, they're always born from the context of huge political and social change. It's never independent of that. Um, so I think we are on the cusp of that in many ways. But because I'm an architect and I'm thinking in terms of design about everything, I feel like for me, that's how I'm going to detect it. Do you know what I mean? So that's what I'm going to look forward to. Like if you are a doctor or an engineer, you might detect this big change in society and history from your lens. But that's kind of the telescope that I'm using to, to detect this change. That's awesome. And so what do you expect to change coming in the next maybe, I don't know, decade or so? Because it's going to spark from now and it's going to carry over to like maybe the next decade, maybe the next century. What are you looking forward to seeing and what kind of stuff do you think people should be thinking about when they're designing new spaces? I want to see the organization of buildings change. We have lived in 
apartments and houses organized with kitchen bedrooms, entrance hallway for what, over a hundred years. Um, and even this model was, you know, brought in by the industrial revolution and the need for workers and this, the need for like families to function in a certain way. So all of that has a political and social background. Um, and I'm looking for the wave that will turn that upside down. And I think with, with remote work, we're seeing huge change in the way domestic space is being used. Um, cities centers are now empty. I mean, look at downtown New York. Um, so the way space is organized always changes as a consequence of how society reorganizes itself. Um, so that's what I'm keeping an eye for. Totally. And I was thinking about that um, for a while now. It's like, you know, from the 1950s or 60s up until now. Well, let's actually go before that. Before the 1950s, there's no such thing as like a living room with or a TV room. Maybe there's a living room with people, right? But there's no TV room. So I'm like, hmm, are people going to be designing VR rooms now? And I would suspect that that's going to happen. I see it on Facebook all the time in these VR groups where people have like dedicated VR spaces. And you mentioned with remote work now, people are creating like mini like YouTube studios and like, you know, they're making sure that their home office is like a central part of their space. So it's really interesting how those two things will spark more ideas. You talked about with the kitchens and, and bedroom. So that's, I've never thought about that way. So thanks so much for kind of like unlocking that in my brain as well, because I only thought about it from the TV room to the VR room, but I'm sure it's going to get a lot crazier than that uh, in the next decade. So before we head out, um, where can people find you online? Where can they connect with you? Where can they learn a little bit more about the company and the projects you guys worked on? Best way to reach out or to read some of the thoughts that are going through my head uh, is uh, Twitter by far. Um, and then, of course, I'm on LinkedIn and some of the other platforms. But um, if you're on Twitter, definitely come by and say hi. That's awesome. And what is your username for people listening? Andrea VR and Andrea with two E's. Awesome. And I'll link that in the description as well. But for anyone just kind of listening, uh, I don't know, some people might download this audio for some reason. Who knows how people consume podcasts these days. So you can check her out on Twitter. And I will link that in the description if you are on like Spotify or something. So yeah, I think this is this is a great way to end. Andrea, this was amazing. This is such a crazy conversation that just took so many different shapes and forms and that I could have imagined. So I really appreciate you bringing all your wisdom and your awesome brain into this conversation. And I hope we can do this again in like maybe the next year or something where we see some progress or at least like a launch of the app and we can maybe go into detail with that. And who knows, maybe the next podcast we do is in VR and we do it spatially. I would love that. And yeah, thank you so much for having me as a guest. I, I had a blast. This was amazing. That's awesome. Okay, well, have a great night. And for everyone listening, enjoy the rest of your day, your night, whatever time you're listening to this on. Thanks for listening.